Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everyone. As always, I'm Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through the stand. I hope everybody is doing well and staying safe. I would say happy summer to everybody, but uh, it's not summer yet. I think summer's first official day is June 22nd, although in Ohio, it certainly feels like summer more days than not. Um, And honestly, I mean, yesterday, I thought it was, you know, it could have been March yesterday for all I know. I don't know. What is time anymore? (laughs) Um, But I do hope everybody does have a very safe summer. Please be mindful of your health and the health of others. COVID is uh, has not disappeared. We are still in the middle of a pandemic. So please, 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 please take care of yourself and uh, just, you know, have some have some respect and some courtesy for your fellow man and wash your hands and wear a mask when uh, you go out into public. So that's it on that front. Um, we are going to jump into this week's episode, which is chapter 56. A quick recap of chapter 55. Larry asked Judge Ferris to head west, to which he agreed Judge Ferris left in a Land Rover under the guise of heading to Denver for the day. Stu, Nick, and Ralph visit Tom in North Boulder and use hypnosis to give Tom instruction on how to get to Vegas, what to look for, and when to head back east. Tom agrees to go, but it's a very heavy burden on the shoulders of the other three men. Harold and Nadine continue to wonder about their place not only in Boulder, but out west. Nadine questions Flagg's ability to not care that she's given her body to another man, but for that one little thing. And Harold now knows that it was Fran who broke into his house. And rather than simply call it even and let it go, Harold's bitterness towards the Free Zone Committee intensifies. In Chapter 56 of Book 2 on the Border, Ralph finds Stu, who is cycling back to his house after working at the power station that day. Ralph informs Stu that a group of people, about 40 of them, has arrived. They've arrived in Boulder, including a doctor named George Richardson, which is very good news. They've been waiting for a doctor for a while now. All they have is Dick Ellis, who is a a veterinarian, and Lori Constable, who's a nurse. So this is very good news. The bad news, however, is that Richardson's group had a pregnant woman with them. She gave birth to twins about 10 days ago, and both of the twins died. The mother sort of lost her mind, ranting about death and destruction and how there would be no more babies. The group decided the best thing to do would be to perform autopsies on the babies to see if it had been the super flu that killed them. But the mother um, had buried the twins before Anyone else was able to get to them, and she refused to say where she had done it. Obviously, this is very distressing news for Stu, who knows that Fran will not take the news well at all. 
Richardson is not 100% sure that the babies died of the super flu, but as the babies were gone before he could perform an autopsy, there's really no way of telling that they didn't. But knowing would have been important (laughs) because if babies can't survive the super flu, what hope is left for humanity? The doctor said that even if it had been the super flu, there was a possibility that two immune people could make an immune baby. But they have no idea if Jess Ryder, who's the father of uh, Fran's baby, was immune. If he was, he's certainly not in Boulder now. Stu decides to go home and check on Fran to tell her before someone else gets around to it. But he is too late because Sue Stern had already come by to talk to Fran, not wanting her to find out another way. Fran is pretty desolate. Stu comforts her, reminding her that they don't know for sure that the twins died of Captain Tripps. And Fran knows that, but she has not felt the baby move since Larry came by to ask for Harold. It was just that one time. It's the waiting for her that is torture. She says not knowing makes it worse. And she can't do anything but wait until the baby is born to see if it will survive. Stu assures her that she will not be waiting alone. Nadine returns to her old house to grab some of her things, and it's there that she finds Leo sitting in the corner, naked except for his underpants, with his thumb in his mouth. He seems to have reverted a bit to Joe for the time being, and he says nothing but watches Nadine. His silence unnerves her, and she tries to talk to him, but he does not reply to anything she says. Mostly, it seems as though he's silently judging her. His silence scares her, and Nadine finds that she was more comfortable with him when he was a little savage, clinging to his knife. Nadine tells Leo that he cannot stay there, but he confirms that he's not Leo. He is Joe. Nadine tells him that it doesn't really matter who he is. It says that crazy feeling that she was in a time warp, that she was back to square one, persisted. It made her feel unreal and frightened. That part of our lives, that part where we were together and on our own, that part is gone. You've changed, I've changed, and we can't change back. Nadine continues to talk as she packs her things. Joe is not on his own. He has Larry and Lucy mom, and they want him. Well, Larry wants him, and Lucy wants whatever Larry wants, so she wants him too. Nadine calls Lucy a carbon copy. And the silence from Leo slash Joe grows heavier around her, and Nadine feels bitter because Joe didn't choose Larry and Lucy over her. He chose Mother Abigail. It wasn't Larry and Lucy, Nadine said viciously. I could have understood that, if that's all it was. But it was really that old bag you gave me up for, wasn't it? That stupid old woman in her rocking chair, grinning at the world with her false teeth. But now she's gone, and so you come running back to me. But it won't play, do you hear me? It won't play. None of this is Nadine's fault. She even begged Larry to be with her, and he said no. So none of it is her fault. Joe continues to say nothing. Nadine says goodbye and tells him to go to Larry. She leaves and wonders if Joe was actually just a hallucination brought on by her own guilt. Guilt at abandoning the boy. Guilt at making Larry wait too long. Guilt at the things she and Harold had done and the much worse things which were waiting. Perhaps Joe hadn't really been there at all. Nadine goes to the window, and sure enough, Joe is sitting in the chair in the corner, unmoving, 
Nadine flees and heads back towards Harold's. By the time she reached Harold's, she had gotten herself under some kind of control, but she knew it had to end quickly for her here in the zone. If she wanted to keep her sanity, she must soon be away. The next public meeting goes pretty well. The residents of Boulder discuss the elective period of the free zone, and after some suggestions, a yearly term was voted in. But one gentleman, Harry Dunbarton, thinks even a year may be too much. This might get out of hand if the town continues to grow. Glenn agrees and suggests yet another committee, the Representative Government Committee, so they can focus on putting the Constitution back to work. He suggests Harry had that committee and Glenn will serve on it as well. Stu is elected free zone marshal, and he adds as he accepts the nomination and the job, the main job of a marshal as I see it is stopping people from hurting each other, and there aren't any of us who want to do that. Enough people have been hurt already, and I guess that's all I've got to say. Then Stu brings up the idea of a law committee. About five people are needed, otherwise Stu won't feel right about locking anyone up should it come to that. Someone suggests the judge. Everybody agrees, but when Judge Ferris does not stand to acknowledge the nomination, people start to talk and wonder where he might be. Lucy is upset. Who has seen him? Teddy Wiesak stands and tells everyone he saw the judge heading out of town two days ago, heading for Denver. Stu tries to smooth things over by suggesting another nomination since the judge isn't there, but Lucy is not willing to let this rest that easy. The judge is an old man. What if he's sick or needs their help? Stu tells her that Denver is a big place, essentially meaning that there's nothing they could do. It's a bit unsettling for everyone, but they eventually nominate another man, a 26-year-old lawyer, and Judge Ferris is voted a place on the committee in absentia. Brad Kitchener then says that they should have the power on by September 2nd or 3rd, and he is met with thunderous applause. (laughs) Chad Norris then asks for some more volunteers for the burial committee, while acknowledging those who have already stepped in and served, including Harold. Harold barely accepts the acknowledgement, a little too turned on by all the naughty things that Nadine has been whispering in his ear. They then introduce George Richardson, the doctor, and as business wraps up, the Free Zone Committee exchange glances. They wonder if anyone will bring up flag and what they're planning on doing about what's going on out west, but nobody does. Several people come up to congratulate him, Stu, after the meeting, one of them the new doctor. You handled that very well, Marshall, Richardson said, and for a moment, Stu almost looked over his shoulder to see who Richardson was talking to. Then he remembered and suddenly felt scared. Lawman? He was an imposter. A year, he told himself. A year and no more. But he still felt scared. The members of the committee gather after the meeting. They wonder if people will be suspicious about the judge being gone. Nick writes down that they'll wonder if he went west for real. They know they were lucky to get away tonight without a discussion about what's going on out west, but... Nick says that they need to tackle it head-on next time, another meeting on September 15th, and they think they can hold on that long if the power comes back on. Sue Stern says goodnight. She's heading home to sleep as Dana Jurgens is leaving for Las Vegas the next morning. Sue explains that Dana is a strong person and can take care of herself. In there somewhere, it's mentioned that she's bisexual, which confuses Stu for some reason, not that it really matters. Dana took the request very well. 
She says that if not for Stu and the others, they would have been dead or in Vegas anyway, since that's where the group had been heading when Stu's party found them. Dana had been wondering what her place in the free zone was, and now she knows that her place is out of it. Dana promised that she would try to come back. She was going with a switchblade strapped to her arm, hoping that maybe she could get close enough to flag to use it. She told Sue if he's a big enough dictator, then maybe he's all that's holding them together. If he was gone, maybe they'd start fighting and squabbling among themselves. It might be the end of them if he dies, and if I get close to him, Susie, he better have his guardian devil with him. Sue says, they'll kill you, Dana. And she replies, maybe, maybe not. It might be worth it just to have the pleasure of watching his guts fall out on the floor. Their decision to send Dana weighs heavily on Sue, and as she leaves, Stu notes that she looks older. We all do, writes Nick. Stu is headed for the power station the next morning when he sees Stu and... Dana on cycles, getting ready to leave. He stops to say goodbye, and he wishes Dana luck. They kiss each other, and Dana says that Fran is a lucky woman. Sue plans on riding with Dana to Colorado Springs, where Dana will continue the journey alone. And two days later, Sue is back in Boulder. She had watched Dana leave until she disappeared, and then she'd cried for a while. On her way back, she found a puppy in a culvert near a farm road where she had camped. Sue took the puppy, a female Irish setter, found the puppy some food, and drove back to Boulder with the dog in her saddlebag. Everyone was ecstatic about this news, because once the puppy was older, Kojak would be glad to make her acquaintance. The news helped quell some of the worry over Mother Abigail's disappearance, forgotten in the excitement over canine Adam and Eve. Sue Stern had become a heroine, and no one questioned what she had been doing so far away from Boulder in the first place. For Stu, it was the morning the two of them left Boulder that he remembered, watching them ride off toward the Denver-Boulder turnpike, because no one in the zone ever saw Dana Jurgens again. On August 27th, at dusk, Nick, Larry, Ralph, and Stu see Tom off. They don't have to put him, him under hypnosis again because he knows what he's meant to do now. Travel at night, sleep in the day, and see the elephant. Tom asks Nick if he really has to do this. Nick nods. Tom asks if he will still have his house when he comes back, and they nod. It's an emotional goodbye. Ralph is the one who's going to take Tom to Route 70. And the remaining three men watch the motorcycle carrying Tom and Ralph until the headlights disappear. Stu asks Larry if they think they'll ever see him again. Larry responds, If we don't, The seven of us, well, maybe not Fran, she was never for sending him. The rest of us are going to be eating and sleeping with the decision to send him for the rest of our lives. Nick, more than anyone else. Nick keeps to himself, away from Stu and Larry, standing on the side lawn of Tom Cullen's house, his hands in his pockets and his head down. Fran goes to meet with George Richardson and get a prenatal exam. When he's ready for her, Fran tells him that she's pregnant, and she gets very emotional and begins to cry. The doctor tries to reassure Fran that the twins' death may not have been related to Captain Tripp's. It was a difficult delivery, Fran. The mother was a heavy smoker. The babies were lightweights, even for twins. They came in the late evening very suddenly. I had no opportunity to make a postmortem. Regina Wentworth is being cared for by some of the women who were in our party. I believe, I hope that she's going to come out of the mental fugue state she's currently in, 
But for now, all I can say is those babies had two strikes against against them from the start. The cause of death could have been anything. But no, they couldn't rule out the super flu. Fran says they just have to wait and see, but Richardson says hell no. He's going to monitor her and every other pregnant woman in Boulder. General Electric used to have a slogan, progress is our most important product. In the zone, babies are our most important product, and they are going to be treated accordingly. As Fran gets dressed, Lori admits that she and Dick Ellis had been trying for a baby, but Fran's will be the first, and Lori knows that it's going to be all right. Fran appreciates it, but says nothing. Lori is wrong. The Wentworth twins had been the first, and they had died. Richardson tells Fran that the baby's fine, it's alive, and he's not sure she actually felt the baby move, as it could have been gas, but Fran is convinced that it was the baby. She's due in mid-January, and he says he won't tell her not to worry, but to try to keep the worry to a minimum. On the 29th of August, three groups came in, one with 22 members, one with 16, and one with 25. Sandy Duchines got around to see all seven members of the committee and tell them that the Free Zone now had over 1,000 residents. Boulder no longer seemed such a ghost town. At Harold's, Nadine watches Harold put together something in a shoebox. He's using dynamite and reading from an open book. He tells Nadine to take a walk, as he's not sure how old the dynamite is. Nadine is not sure what that means, so Harold explains... It perspires, to be perfectly couth, and what it perspires is pure nitroglycerin, one of the world's great unstable substances. So if it's old, there's a very good chance that this little science fair project could blow us right over the top of Flagstaff Mountain and all the way to the land of Oz. This, it turns out, is Flag's will. He had told Nadine so through the planchette, and Harold was Flag's way of taking care of the committee. But how much control did Flagg really have? Nadine had gone back to check on Joe, but he had already returned to Larry and Lucy. When asked, Lucy informed Nadine that Joe had slipped back some, and no doubt Lucy blamed her for that, too. Nadine had been bitterly disappointed not to have seen Joe once more, to kiss him goodbye. Her time in Boulder was coming to an end. She thinks to herself, never mind... Best you let him go completely now that you're embarked on this obscenity. You'd only be doing him harm, and possibly harm to yourself as well, because Joe sees things, knows things. Let him stop being Joe. Let me stop being Nadine, Mom. Let him go back to being Leo forever. But the paradox in that was inexcorable. She could not believe that any of these zone people had more than a year's life left in them, and that included the boy. It was not his will that they should live. So tell the truth. It isn't just Harold who is his instrument. It's you, too. You, who wants to find the single unforgivable sin in the post-plague world as murder, as the taking of a single life. Nadine finds herself wishing that the dynamite was old and would blow them both up and put an end to this. But then she thinks about what would happen after they got over the mountains, and there's a slippery warmth in her belly. Harold is finally done, and Nadine asks if it will work. Harold asks if she wants to try it and find out, but they go upstairs to have some sex, and in the box is a walkie-talkie handset from Radio Shack. Its back is off, and wired to it was eight sticks of dynamite. 
The book Harold was reading was still open. It was from the Boulder Public Library, and the title was 65 National Science Fair Prize Winners. The diagram showed a doorbell wired up to a walkie-talkie, similar to the one in the shoebox. The caption beneath said, Third Prize, 1977, National Science Fair, constructed by Brian Ball, Rutland, Vermont. Say the word and ring the bell, up to 12 miles away. Earlier that afternoon, Ralph Brentner had told Harold that Chad Norris would be speaking at the next Free Zone Committee. Harold happened to ask when that would be, and Ralph replies, September 2nd. So, there's a lot going on in this chapter, even though it's not terribly long. And two very important things um, happen that will have a future impact on the Free Zone. It is worth noting that Mother Abigail is still gone, though it seems as though the residents of the Free Zone are getting used to her absence. The Free Zone finally has a doctor as well, and although his arrival is good news, it also comes with the fact that another pregnant woman had given birth to twins, and both babies had died. And the frustrating part is they don't know if the twins had died of the superflu or other factors. The mother had buried them out of grief in an unknown location before Richardson could find out. So there is a question as to whether or not babies can survive the superflu. Clearly, um, if one parent is immune, that may mean nothing if the twins died of Captain Tripp's. But perhaps two immune parents could produce an immune child. They just don't know. They can't know until it actually happens. Understandably, this is upsetting for for Fran and Stu, but Richard does tell Fran that her baby is fine so far. And if Fran's baby is born and dies because of Captain Tripp's, then they're just going to have to wait until a child is born of two immune parents to find out if the immunity is genetic. Basically, the future of the human race is still up in the air. So what happens if babies continue to die? Um, what will that mean for the people in the free zone? Will that completely dismantle their society that they're rebuilding? Um, what happens when people realize that there's no future for the human race? What does that do to someone mentally? Uh, it is pretty much a hurry up and wait kind of game. There's really nothing they can do about it until they know. So at the meeting, (laughs) there are more committees, more elections, and Stu is now officially the marshal of the free zone. Of course, when it comes to the suggestion of a law committee, obviously Judge Ferris is the, you know, that he's the choice for a place on this committee. He's a judge. Of course, they want him on the law committee, (laughs) but he's gone. So they can't tell everybody that he's headed west as a spy, but it does put them in a tight spot. And obviously, um, they're not completely, you know, like I said in the last episode, they have their flaws. They don't always think everything through? Did they not think that somebody might notice that, you know, a well-respected upstanding citizen in the free zone is missing? You know, and the free zone committee is feeling the responsibility of what they're doing and the secrets that they're keeping. It's a very heavy burden for everybody, Sue and Nick especially, because they're sending their friends to Las Vegas to what could essentially become a suicide mission. Sue knows that Dana can handle herself. Um, You know, Dana is a strong character. We didn't see a lot of her. She's a minor character, but she can hold her own. And I think Sue knows that she may never see Dana again. And will she be able to live with that decision? 
On a brighter note, she does find a female puppy still alive, which means more puppies once that puppy is old enough to breed. And I loved that King called them the canine Adam and Eve (laughs) because apparently cats survived the super flu, but I haven't really seen anything about cats um, in this book after, uh, I forget what chapter it was, chapter 30, uh, when they're mentioned in our net kind of skulking around, uh, around all the dead dogs. But I'm so happy that some dogs survived. If we have to repopulate the world with a bunch of Irish setters, I'm okay with that. (laughs) Um, So another important part of this chapter, and it's very small, but it's very significant. King tells us Dana's fate. In one line, he says, because no one in the zone ever saw Dana Jurgens again. So we know just on based on that, she doesn't make it back to Boulder. And this is not the first time King has written a story where he's told us what happens in the future very early on um, before knowing all the details. And he's so good at it because it's not even foreshadowing. It's just outright telling us that she doesn't make it back. And yet, even with that quote unquote spoiler, we still want to know what happened to Dana. And we want to know what she was able to do, if anything, before it happened. So we know that Dana doesn't make it back, but we don't have any idea yet um, what's going to become of Judge Ferris or Tom. And the scene with Tom leaving with Ralph, you know, that was an emotional read, too, just like when they had to hypnotize him to ask him to go in the first place, because Tom is just such a sweet, pure character. And you know he doesn't want to go, but he cares so much about his friends and Mother Abigail and the free zone that he's going to do it. When he asks Nick if he has to go, oh, it just it really just broke my heart because Nick is trying to be strong. Nick is doing the right thing. But like, how can you send somebody like Tom into that situation? It just, oh, it kills me. You know, the decision is made and Tom, he doesn't fight it. Nick knows the potential outcome of sending Tom West. And yes, he's angry about it. He has to live with this decision for the rest of his life, especially if Tom doesn't return. And so now all three of our scouts have gone. They are heading west to spy on Flag. We know Dana will not return, but what about Ferris and Tom? And will any of them come back east alive? Nadine is dealing with a lot of guilt of her own, and it is shown that Leo has regressed a bit into Joe. No clothes but his underpants, sucking his thumb, not speaking. He very clearly feels abandoned by Nadine, and Nadine tries to justify her actions and deal with her guilt by blaming everything and everyone around her, including Larry and Lucy and Mother Abigail. Pinning the responsibility on Joe just doesn't work. His silence unnerves her, probably because she fears that he can see inside of her and sense how she feels and what she's doing. She knows that when he's Joe, he knows things. And that kind of reminded me of last week's chapter where, you know, under hypnosis, Stu asked Tom, are you the Tom that we know? And Tom says, no, I'm God's Tom when he's under hypnosis. So I wonder... If Joe can see things more, um, know things more when he's Joe, I'm not sure. Because when he was Leo, he knew not to go into Harold's house. But that could have also just been he's a great judge of character. (laughs) So it's interesting that these two characters sort of see and know things that, you know, a child and then a childlike man, like they're kind of connected on that on that level. But despite 
you know, Leo becoming Joe again, that does not seem to change Nadine's mind any. She and Harold still have plans to leave, but not before committing some major destruction. And their plan is now clear. Flag is using Harold to destroy the Free Zone Committee. Harold plans on getting, um, basically he plans on setting off a bomb during their next meeting. After which Nadine and Harold will leave and head west. September 2nd. It seems to be the target date, and it's a horrific act to be planning. But in Nadine's words, this is Flag's will. And that reminds me a lot of Mother Abigail talking about God's will. Is this God's will, too? That the Free Zone Committee be sacrificed? Will Mother Abigail return before that happens? Um, September 2nd is not that far away. Tom left on, you know, August 27th, so it's very close. And that's where the chapter ends. So, you know, what did you guys think? Do you think that the scouts will make it to Vegas and get any relevant knowledge to bring back to Boulder? What do you think happens to Dana? Do you think that, you know, what about Harold and Nadine? Will they pull off Flag's plan to blow the Free Zone Committee sky high? And there may be a chance to foil their plans. Uh, next week in Chapter 57, Leo tips Larry off to talk to Fran about Harold and Nadine. The Free Zone nearly gets the power running, and Flag comes to Nadine with some suggestions of his own. And that is it for this episode, you guys, of The Circle Opens. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would be amazing if you left me a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. It really helps the podcast get noticed, and it certainly brightens my day, and I truly do appreciate everybody who has already left me a review. Thank you so much to everybody who's emailed or reached out to me on social media. You can find me at The Circle Opens and thecircleopens.com. And you can also send me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. And I believe that's it for this week, everybody. Um, hopefully uh, you all stay safe, stay healthy, enjoy the beginning of summer. It's kind of cool because uh, this week is uh, the week that all of this started going to hell in the book. June 16th is when Campion uh, crashed his vehicle in Arnett, Texas. And to all the fathers uh, out there uh, in America, everywhere, actually, I hope you have a very wonderful Father's Day on Sunday the 21st. So take care of yourselves and M-O-O-N, that spells, see you next week. 